Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Epistle to the Romans, chapter 14. Romans 14. Our current study for the last weeks has been the fundamentals of forgiveness. And I confess that uh, we've spent the first seven weeks dealing with the first major heading entitled The Essence of Forgiveness. As we considered, first of all, the source of our need for forgiveness, which is our sin. We've dwelled a lot on the whole matter of sin, dealing with what it is and how it is what needs to be forgiven. You know, we live in a day when there's a lot of uh, churches, so-called churches, a lot of quote-unquote ministries that tell people that they should be healthy and that they should be wealthy. But what we saw from the scriptures is that man's greatest need is not for health, it's not for wealth, it's for forgiveness of their sins. You think about what Jesus said to those when he said, it's better that you go into eternity not having an eye or not having a hand than to go to hell and being whole. So your most important need is not your body's health. Your most important need is the forgiveness of your sins so that you will go to heaven. And from there we spent most of our time through these messages dealing with what sin is, the sin which needs to be forgiven. And we looked pretty much at a definition of sin under uh, several texts. The first we saw from 1 John chapter 3 where we read that clear text, sin is lawlessness, a breaking of the law. And we saw that it was the moral law of God. The second text that we looked at came from James chapter 4, verse 17, where it says, when you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, that's sin. And that was in the context of the church. And that happens to a lot of us. The most recent one we saw was here in Romans 14. You look down to verse 23, and we see from this passage, but the one who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. And that's the biblical principle. We know that he was dealing with disputes in the church about some would eat this meat and some wouldn't, and some were honoring days and some weren't. And so he's dealing with that. But the last statement is a general biblical principle that is true in many, many cases. In fact, it's a pretty much universal truth, biblical truth, that whatsoever or whatever is not of faith is sin. And we spent weeks dealing with the whole matter of what faith is. That faith is that hope and the assurance of things that are promised and seen in the Scriptures, and we believe them. And then we looked at where faith comes from. And that is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. God gives us faith to believe His Word. 
And then we see in this text that even when we have that wonderful faith, the assurance of things hoped for, the assurance of things to come that God has promised in his word, even though we know that, and even though we believe his word in every aspect, in every way, that every word is the very word of God, and even though we have been given this great gift of faith and grace, and mercy of God to forgive us for our sins. We still sin. Even Christians still sin. So last Lord's Day we dealt with this under what we called the biblical reality of sin. That all men, including Christians, are sinners. Why do you think Paul had to spend so much time writing to these churches, telling them about the problems that they were having and how to deal with their sin? Because people in churches sin. And this is what the Scripture shows us over and over. And so, just because we know that we're all sinners, we don't want to ever give in to it. We don't want to sign a peace treaty with it. We don't want to have a license to sin, so we battle against sin. Yes, we're all sinners, but we all still battle against it and strive for holiness. It's called the mortification of sin. And We looked at that from Romans chapter 8. We are to strive to put our sin to death. And then we left off last week by saying, yes, we're all sinners. And yes, we battle to mortify our sins. But that should not make us morbid. It should not negate our joy in Christ. So there is a real balance here. You know, we battle against sin, as Paul said in Romans. We strive to mortify our sin, as he said in Romans chapter 8, the next chapter. We're battling all the time. But there is still this matter of the joy of our salvation. And I believe that we should have that joy. We are not to be morbid. The frozen chosen, no fun ever. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that being Christian, Christian means that you have fun, fun, fun all the time, 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 as one of my pastors used to say. No, we strive against sin and we have joy and there's a balance there. And that's where we left off last Lord's Day. So I said that we've talked a lot about sin and we have. And today I want to look at it from a slightly different angle, if I can use that terminology. I want to deal with the fact that sin does something to you. And that sin does something to me. Sin affects you. Sin affects me. Sin affects every one of us. And it does so in many ways. It changes you. Sometimes it leaves scars on you. Scars in your memory. As you think about the things that you have done over the years. 
and you're ashamed of them. And you know what I mean. I believe you all know what I'm talking about. You have all done things that you wish you had not done. You have all done things that you regret doing. Some before you were saved, some after you were saved. You've all done things that you wish you had not done and you regret. You have all said things that you wish you had never said. Perhaps in a time of anger. Perhaps in a time of pain. I pointed out that man that worked for waste management. That uh, he worked there for years. And that he slipped and fell. And a curse came out of his mouth. And that's the only thing people remembered about him. So-called Christian. And he cursed. Perhaps that's happened to you. We've all done things that we wish we had not done. You know, there are some of this that is very serious. I have had in congregations women who have had abortions before they were saved. Don't you think that there's not a day that goes by that they don't think about that? They murdered their own child. That'll leave a scar, literally and spiritually. People have committed heinous crimes prior to being saved, and some even following it, that leave scars. Some people tend to gossip cause dissension in churches. I've seen a lot of that. Not here. But I've seen a lot of that. Men and women commit adultery physically and in the heart. I've told you of cases within the church and I'm not saying these people were saved. I doubt that they were. But cases within the church that I didn't even know about. Women living with men that weren't their husbands. Sin leaves scars. And when you come to see yourself as a sinner before God, and you cringe at what you have done. Does that happen to you sometimes? Literally, sometimes I cringe thinking about a sin that I may have committed. Sometimes some of us have seen things we wish we never saw. Maybe even early in your childhood or later on. You've seen things that you just go, I wish I had never seen that. And it leaves a scar in your memory. Sin alienates us from God. And sin does things to us. Bad things. But wonderfully, when God is dealing with a man, or dealing with a woman, or dealing with a boy or a girl, sometimes God uses sin 
to change your life. He brings you to the place where you recognize how bad it is. You begin to feel your sin in a different way. Not a better way. In fact, maybe a worse way. But you feel it. You feel the burden of it. And it brings you to the place that you really want to deal with your sin. You really want to do something about it. And so today, still under that first major heading, the essence of forgiveness, I want to look at our third point. We have seen the source of our need for forgiveness, the sin which needs to be forgiven, and today, the start down the road to forgiveness. The start down the road to forgiveness. And what I wish to point out is what the Holy Spirit does in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls that He is drawing to Himself. I want to see what the Holy Spirit does in one who is being drawn by God, particularly as God exposes their sin to themselves. Turn with me in your Bibles now to John chapter 16 as we see the first one. I've got four. The first one is the guilt produced by our sin. The guilt produced by our sin. Here in John chapter 16, Jesus is telling the disciples that he is going to go away, but that he is going to send one a helper in verse 7. He's going to go, but he will send to you the Holy Spirit. Verse 8, and when he comes, he, that is the Holy Spirit, will convict the world concerning sin. Righteousness and judgment. Now we've gone through this passage not too long ago, but I want to just focus on the fact that Jesus says that one of the things that the Holy Spirit will do when he comes is to convict men and women of their sin. People are going to be convicted by the Holy Spirit of their sin. How do you know what sin is? You know what the Bible says. You know what the Ten Commandments are. Remember, sin is lawlessness, a breaking of the commandments. So you know it's wrong when you steal. You know it's wrong when you lie. You know it's wrong when you commit adultery or when you covet or when you kill or whatever. You know that this is sin. And the Holy Spirit comes and convicts you of your sin produces within you guilt produces within you a desire to be rid of this guilt over my sin turn to acts chapter 2 acts chapter 2 here we have the very beginning of the church the kingdom of God in the church. The Holy Spirit in the beginning of the chapter has been poured out. 
And the disciples begin to speak in tongues, which are known languages. That's what the real biblical definition of tongues is. Known languages. And people hear them as they're preaching in their own language. It's a miracle. It's not a silly phenomena that is demonic that we see in many churches today. It was a miracle that as they spoke, men understood them in their own language. And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, gets up and he preaches to the multitudes. Multitudes who had gathered from around the region, from various countries even, that were there in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And Peter preaches. What does he preach? He preaches the word of God. He preaches truth. And he accuses them of killing Jesus, the Son of God. He convicts them of their sin. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to their heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? What is that piercing of the heart? It is the Holy Spirit taking the word of God and showing them that what Peter is saying is true and you are guilty. Guilty! Guilty as charged. I've sinned against God. And so he takes the word of God and the Holy Spirit takes that and convicts men of their sins. They realize they're guilty. They're guilty. Recognition of your sin produces guilt. Now let's turn to a classic text. You know, I think we might come back to Acts 2 if you want to leave a marker there or something. But go to that text that I told you to leave a marker in earlier. Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Passage that we read earlier. But I want you to look at a portion of this passage that I did not read. And that would be the introduction. The introduction to the text that is given here. Or what we could sometimes call the title. It says right under the heading, Psalm 51, A Contrite Sinner's Prayer for Pardon. For the choir director, a Psalm of David. When Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba and had killed, murdered her husband, Uriah the Hittite. This is the context of this psalm given by David. And what does he say? Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Blot out my, my transgression. My transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. 
and cleanse me from my sin. Nathan comes to him and says, Thou art the man. You killed Uriah the Hittite. You took his wife and committed adultery. You have sinned against God. Thou art the man. His sin produced guilt. And he confesses his sin to God. God, please cleanse me from my sin. My transgression, my iniquity, my sin. I have to believe that for a long time, David's conscience was crying out to him over what he did. Sinner! Guilty! Guilty! Sinner! You killed not only Uriah, but the other men that were with him in that battle. You're a murderer. You're an adulterer. His sin had left a scar. Crying out to him. And here it just pops as he's confronted with his sin by Nathan the prophet. Thou art the man. And he cries out to God, I know it is my iniquity. I know it is my transgression. I know it is my sin. I'm guilty. Sin produces guilt. Sometimes in the preaching of the word, people may feel their sin when the preacher stands and brings the word of God and deals with the whole matter of men and women as sinners, they feel the guilt over their sin. I wonder how often that happens in Joel Osteen's church. Why are men thinking that they're saved in these churches that don't even confront sin. But this is how men are saved. When the first thing that they begin to realize is that they are guilty. I know my sin. And I also know from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, that this is what men suppress. They may hear it and they may feel guilt, but, oh, I don't don't even want to think about that. Let's Let's not squash that down. Let's not even think about my sin. Let's not think about how guilty I am. Let's not think about that. Let's take a drink. Let's take a drug. Let's go fishing. Let's watch football or hockey. I can drown my guilt in the pleasures of the world. And men do it. They suppress their guilt. They suppress their sin. They suppress the truth in 
unrighteousness. Now, I could say a lot more here, but I must move on. And I think we may actually get back to Psalm 51. So leave that marker there. But the second thing I want to see is that that the, the fear, that fear is produced by your sin. Guilt is produced by your sin. And the second one is fear is produced by your sin. Let's turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. I wonder sometimes if some don't have sleepless nights over the guilt of their sin. And perhaps this shows us a little more why. Fear of God is produced by sin. Here in Genesis chapter 3, we have the account of the fall of man. Right? You're all familiar with that? That the woman, verse 6, saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, and she took from its fruit and ate. She knew she was not supposed to. It was direct rebellion against God and His Word. But she ate, and she gave to her husband. Verse 7, then their eyes, the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. All of a sudden, sin has entered and there's guilt. They cover themselves, they make clothing and they cover themselves and what do they do when they hear God? Verse 8, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. No sooner had they sinned than they hid. They hid themselves. Why? Why did they hide themselves? Verse 10, the Lord addresses them and said to him in verse 9, Where are you? In verse 10, Adam responds, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Sin produces a fear of God, a dread of God, a fear, because you know you're guilty. Adam couldn't hide it. He knew he was guilty. He tried to hide it with the coverings, but he knew he was guilty. And so when God comes, he hides himself because he was afraid. Some of you ought to be more afraid. Some of you ought to be afraid of God because one day you will stand before him as judge. There is to be a healthy Fear of God. When you come to see yourself as a sinner, you ought to be afraid. And so they hid themselves because they were afraid. Look at uh, chapter 42 of Genesis. Chapter 42, towards the end of the book. This is dealing with the account of Joseph. As you know, Joseph was taken by his brothers because they hated him, thrown into a pit, and they were going to kill him. But instead of killing him, they figured they could profit from him 
So they sold him to a caravan on its way to Egypt. Now this uh, caravan sells him to Potiphar as a slave. So he's in Potiphar's house as a slave. Potiphar's wife wrongly accuses him of trying to molest her. So he's thrown into prison where he becomes like the head of the the head jailer under the jailer, but he's still in prison. And he interprets the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker of Pharaoh. And as you recall, Pharaoh has a dream. He's troubled by the dream. He needs somebody who can interpret dreams. And then it's remembered that Joseph can interpret the dreams. So Joseph is elevated to Pharaoh, tells Pharaoh, interprets the dream that Pharaoh had, and then is elevated to second in all of Egypt. And Joseph is there in Egypt, and he is the one who is in charge of passing out the grain because a famine had struck the land. And now his brothers come to him, and that's where we are in chapter 42 of Genesis. His brothers come before him. Verse 6, now Joseph was the ruler over the land, and he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. You see, he knew who they were, but they didn't know who he was. Why would that be? Some I mean, of you kids understand why they didn't recognize their brother? Well, because Jewish people would have looked a certain way. Longer hair, longer beards perhaps. But Joseph had on the makeup of Egypt and the look of Egypt. He looked like an Egyptian. Might have one of those squared hats, you know, like the Pope wears. And one, <laughs> might have one of those funny hats on. And so they didn't recognize him. Of course, the years had gone by, too. And they didn't recognize that it was Joseph. But Joseph recognized them. And he dealt harshly with them and called them spies and mistreated them and was going to keep them in prison. What did they think to themselves? Verse 21. Then they said to one another, truly, we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul and he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. They were shaking in fear over what was happening to them because of this Egyptian ruler and they attributed it to their guilt over what they did to their brother. Fear. Lurking for years in their hearts because of what they did. But then guilt and fear come because of their sin. Look at another. This time, the book of Daniel, chapter 5. I love this one. Really descriptive. Daniel, chapter 5, dealing with Belshazzar. Here we have in Daniel chapter 5, this new king, Belshazzar. And he has had a feast. He's giving a feast. 
And what he does is he gives orders in verse 2 to have the gold and the silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple. Remember, this is not long after Israel, Judah more specifically, had been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar and all the gold and all the vessels and all the stuff that was in the temple was taken away to Babylon. And many of the people, including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as well. And they're there, and Daniel has proved himself to be a godly man. But Belshazzar has this feast, and he, first of all, I guess we could say, that he mocked God by the taking out of these vessels of gold and silver, the holy objects from the temple, and they just pour wine into them and use them as service implements for themselves. So they're just drinking from them and using them and dishonoring God. But more than that, he commits idolatry. They brought the gold vessels, this is verse 3, which had been taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. And they drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. They committed idolatry. They worshipped idols. The gold and the silver, the stone and the wood, rather than God, the true God. Remember, his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had come to know, and it even, even speaks about it in the, just the previous chapter, that the Lord is God. But his son apparently didn't get it. So he commits this idolatry, he commits this sin, and what happens? The finger of Gad comes and starts writing on the... This would be a good wall for that, or that one. But he, he writes on the wall, the finger of God writes on the wall. Now, I can't even take the time to go into what was written, but he calls Daniel to interpret what was written. And look at, first of all, verse 6, as we see the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack. And his knees began knocking together. What is that? Visible, shaken, fear. Fear from his own sin. Fear. Because God's hand is writing on the wall. And you're caught. He knows what you've done. And fear. And then, of course, Daniel interprets what had been written on the wall. Look at verse 9. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. Daniel comes in and tells him, but he's shaken. He's in fear over his sin. Now I want to turn you to another text. This one is also in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. Here we have the account of Felix, 
and his wife, Drusilla. Down in verse 24, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened. You see, Paul is preaching to Felix, and Felix knows his guilt. And the judgment of God was upon him, and he became frightened. Frightened. This is, again... Part of the work of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament era, and and I can't deny that even in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit comes, shows men their sin, makes them to see and to understand that there's judgment involved, and the fear of God comes from their sin. God uses that fear sometimes to save people. Sometimes people recognize their sin, their guilt, and it causes fear in them to the point that they are afraid of God and afraid of what might happen, and they turn to God to be saved. I remember in the life of my mother, My mother, as some of you may recall, about eight years ago, became very ill. And it was determined later that she had been poisoned by radiation and was literally burning alive from the inside out. There was nothing that they could do to reverse it or to stop it. My mother was going to die. And she knew it. My mother came to the place where she knew that her Roman Catholic religion was not enough. She was about to face God. And she was afraid. She needed more than this phony religion. She needed truth. She needed to know what she was going to say to God because she was about to meet Him. She wanted truth. I spoke last night for some time with one of the members of our church and one of his own relatives is in the similar situation. Likely on his deathbed. He needs truth. There's fear because of what lies ahead. Don't wait to that day. You could die in a car accident. You could die quickly and not have that time. Don't wait till you're on your deathbed. No, today that one day you will stand before God and you will have to give an account to Him for your life and for your sins. What will you say? What will you tell Him? 
Will you say, well, I, I tried to be good? Not enough. Will you try to tell them that you, you tried, you went to church? Not enough. There ought to be fear in the hearts of every one of us that one day we will stand before God and give an account. But the only way, the only way that you will be forgiven for your sins. The only way that you will be accepted into heaven. And the only answer you can say to God is that you are forgiven by Christ. And what He has done for me. And what He has done for me has covered, has covered my sin. And then guess what? If you know that today, and I mean really know it, not church-goer playing games know it, but I mean really know it in your heart, then you can have the confidence that when you stand before God, you won't have to be afraid. You can have peace. I don't think you'll have pride and arrogance I don't think you'll say, well, you know, I'm saved by Jesus, so I'm okay, let me in. No! I am an unworthy sinner. I'm nothing but a sinner! Wicked in every way. Even after having faith, I still sin! But, oh God, your Son Jesus has paid my sin debt. And I rest upon His work and plead with you for mercy because of what your Son has done. You won't have to have fear. You can have confidence. Confidence in Christ that He has paid your debt. Now I had two other areas that I wanted to get to, but our time is gone. Let me just plead with you this day. I hope, I hope you do know the guilt for your sins. Because I tell you, upon the authority of the Word of God, you're all guilty, as am I. And I hope you do have fear. Fear of the judgment of God. Because one day you will stand before Him. And I hope that, that will begin to draw you to repentance and remorse, which are the next two things we'll get to. I pray that God will save you by His grace. I pray, as one old preacher used to say, that you will be restless until you find rest in Christ. Let's pray.